Designers, stylists, scholars, brand executives were coming together to open up the archive of American fashion and celebrate its Black contributions. They weren't used to seeing us walk up and down Fifth Avenue and, you know, Rodeo Drive and go to the Design District in Miami. That's stylist Monica Morrow, and I'm Kimberly Jenkins. The Invisible Seam is a new podcast available now from Tommy Hilfiger's People's Place program and the Fashion and Race Database. Donald Trump's presidency is over, and President Joe Biden has pledged sweeping immigration reforms. Those plans may include a path to citizenship for hundreds of thousands of people brought to the U.S. as children. It's a familiar story, but this time there may be some momentum. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, reporter Edder Camposano talks about what a new administration in Washington, D.C. may mean for some 10,000 so-called dreamers in Oregon. Camposano talked to two men, Esli Becerra and Leo Reyes, who were granted protections under President Obama's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. They discussed President Biden's proposals and their thoughts on the insurrection at the Capitol three years after they attended Trump's first State of the Union address. We talked about what a path to citizenship would mean to both men, how it's important to keep immigrant stories front of mind in a dizzying news environment, and why they are cautiously optimistic about the future. Here's our conversation. Edder Camposano, thanks so much for taking time to talk today. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me. So why did you decide to uh, get in touch with uh, a few uh, dreamers here uh, as we turn the page on the Trump administration? So, you know, I uh, wrote at length about my immigration story for the newspaper um, almost three years ago now when I was naturalized as a U.S. citizen. And I noticed that in our conversations within the newsroom and then also, you know, when it came to Portland media writ large, I, I didn't see very much conversation or coverage of, of people who fell under this circumstance, right? They were brought by their, brought to the U.S. by their families when they were very mm-hmm. young, for all intents and purposes, consider themselves American for all of their lives. And in 2018, for Donald Trump's first State of the Union, um, I was tasked with um, covering and attending the press conferences of Oregon's congressional delegation, at least the uh, ones with a D next to their names. Mm-hmm. And all of them brought dreamers to that first state of the union because it was just a few months after um, then president Trump had said that his administration was going to dismantle the DACA program. Um, and so I just thought it was appropriate, you know, given that Joe Biden has signaled a willingness to work on immigration reform um, it, it felt pertinent to circle back to some of those folks and ask them about what the last three years have been like and what they see in the future. And what did you hear uh, from some of the, the so-called dreamers that you chatted with? How are, how are they feeling um, as we enter this new uh, administration? Cautiously optimistic. That was the general tone of the conversations that I had with both of the brothers that I spoke to for the story and the um, other dreamer, Leo Reyes, who lives in Salem. And, you know, I brought up and we, we talked about how the Obama administration's initial founding of the DACA program 
came pretty soon after he was really heavily criticized for being the deporter in chief. I mean, he presided over a record right. number of deportations during his first term in the presidency. And so when you look at it through those lens, it it's hard not to be a little bit cynical, but you know, as Lita said, uh, and Leo Reyes were cautiously optimistic and more hopeful than anything that the next four years would carve out a path for citizenship for them. Yeah, let's uh, take a listen to Esley um, talking about his perspective as someone who, you know, his whole life has been in America. And he talked uh, to you about um, about that fact. It really hurts the fact that, you know, I've gone through the same exact, you know, education system as anyone else. And I've walked down the same halls and I've done everything the same thing. I haven't really, you know, the only difference is that I, you know, wasn't born here uh, by a year, you know? And yeah, it is very stressful and, and it, it hurts uh, because it, you know, as a human being, you say it's not, it's not fair. I, you know, I've, I'm, I'm, I've gone through the same exact thing. I don't, you know, I've never been to Mexico. I have no interest going back to Mexico. I have no alliance with Mexico. I mean, because this is my country. This is where I, I grew up, and this is where I've learned everything that I know now. So it's like, why, why should I get tossed back into somewhere that I don't know? You know. Yeah, listening to Esley, I mean, his perspective is not uniform, right? Because even in his own family, his brother was born here. But I mean, what do you, what do you think when you hear him talk about his experience under Trump? Above and beyond anything else, eight months is is the very first thing that comes to mind. Eight months separated. As Leva said, uh, from all of this, I mean, he would have been completely spared all of these ordeals, such as, mm-hmm. you know, just the uh, existential dread that he felt when he was a, a junior in high school. And knowing that if he wanted to go to college, he would have to pay out of state tuition and he would not be eligible for any federal financial aid. Eight months. Had he been born eight months later, he would have been covered just like his brother. Um, and so... I mean, it's it's difficult for me to disentangle my own feelings about my own upbringing and what I felt when I was in that exact same position mm. um, mm-hmm. some 15, 16 years ago. Because, yeah, I mean, Esley is one of about 10,000 Oregonians who are currently enrolled in the DACA program. And that represents about 68% of the people in this state, just this state alone, who qualified for the program. And... Again, you know, a lot of the conversation that I had with his brother Kevin was about how just strange and just crushing it was to sit down at the dinner table and know that you've got every opportunity ahead of you, but the person sitting right next to you just has so many doors closed because of the fact that they were born eight months too late. What do we know, Edder, about what Joe Biden and President Biden in his administration, what their stance is on um, on DACA? overall and and um and their path to citizenship that they're discussing uh internally president joe biden has said that his immigration plan would ideally immediately grant green cards to every daca recipient and in order to apply for the program in the first place i mean you would have had to have arrived in the country before 2007 Mm -hmm. been younger than 16 when president obama signed the executive order in um in 2012 and basically either be 
um, serving in the military or going to school. And so beyond that, you also had to keep your nose clean. I mean, you know, keep a clean criminal record. Right. And so you, you see that everybody who would have been enrolled in that program um, would have had to clear substantive hurdles and prove themselves worthy in ways that people who were born here obviously have never had to. And so you've already got this very streamlined process to, yeah, they've been vetted. Mm -hmm. It should be pretty easy to just grant them the protections right away and grant them basically through a green card, a path to citizenship. The criticism of Biden's position is that I believe he's still putting forth the idea that people who receive a green card immediately under DACA should wait eight years instead of the typical five years before they can apply for citizenship. And so that's kind of a sticking point that activists have and um, what the administration is being criticized for. But beyond that, I mean, the immediate effect of a Joe Biden presidency on the DACA program is that there's no lawyers, basically. There's no federal administration lawyers mm-hmm. taking the program to the Supreme Court and saying, let's get rid of this. Well, you mentioned the eight-year timeline. Um, one of one of the uh, DACA, and I hasten to say kids because they're not kids, right? I no, mean, they're, they're in their twenties and thirties. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Leo Reyes talked about the um, sense that immigration reform, as well as um, the status of of Dreamers, is is kind of a perennial issue. Here's what uh, Leo had to say: It is a sense of relief and that sense of a renewed sense of hope, but at the same time, I feel like the sense of anxiety and just nervousness, because I also know there's a lot happening right now um, in our country, and I think immigration and immigration reform tends to be one of those issues that that is really easy for politicians to kind of push aside and kind of put in the back burner as it, you know, often I think what you hear is it's not the right time, um, and I think most of the time it's just to mean that it's not convenient for them to tackle that topic. And, you know, Edder, we're, we're talking the day after the inauguration, and I heard some of that sentiment yesterday, right? Um, you know, hours after the Biden administration uh, formally began that, you know, it, it isn't the right time. It feels like that's going to be kind of um, that 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 talking point is is back again, uh, even as as people are, are hopeful about potential changes. Right. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, (laughs) I think more than anything, the last year and change for me has sort of dismantled this idea that we've got to wait for the right time to do anything. Um, at the, at the very, at the, I guess at the very simplest, I don't know when there's ever going to be a good time for me to take a vacation. Like, you know, (laughs) I'm the education reporter and it seems like every single week there's something, right? And I feel like whenever I try to plan a break of more than a day or so, I I have to take into consideration, oh, what's the Department of Education thinking about maybe two weeks out? What's Portland Public Schools thinking about two weeks Mm -hmm. out? We're all incredibly busy. It's never going to be a good time to, you know, slow down and, and... try to do anything other than what we're doing. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm with you and I'm you know, right there with, with Leo too. And that if, if not now, when, when is it ever going to be a good time? But in terms of the political will to do something, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, your, your coverage of transportation has also brought you pretty 
very close to these debates about whether undocumented immigrants in Oregon should be allowed to have driver's licenses. And the Oregon legislature overturned, I believe, right, the will of the mm-hmm. voters to say yep. they should when Oregonians writ large said, no, they shouldn't. And so it's a very, very tricky subject with a lot of angles to it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, Leo's right. If if not now, when? You know, I'm, I'm curious, Edder, these guys you talked to were there in the Capitol, which, um, you know, was uh, the site of this awful insurrection um, that captured the nation's attention uh, just a few weeks ago. What what did they make of, of, of that um, when, uh, just as, you know, Oregonians watching it on TV? It was difficult for both Leo, I mean, all three of them. So Kevin... Becerra, uh, Esley's younger brother, interned right. for Ron Wyden. So he'd walked those halls um, working for, for a U.S. senator. And both Esley and Leo visited in 2018 as guests for the State of the Union. And so for mm-hmm. them, it was very much this sort of surreal, you know, these are the halls of power that house the institutions that I believe in. I mean, Leo says it perfectly. He, he, he's an American the way that he, um, the way that he sees it and the way that he considers himself. And so to see people desecrate, you know, in their, in their minds, those institutions and what they stand for and what the rule of law stands for that they're trying so hard to find the protections of, right? Like they just want to be covered like every other U S citizen by the very same laws. And, they're they're working every single day toward that goal and to see people who were basically granted those very same privileges and those very same rights by virtue of the fact that they were born in this country mm-hmm. and in their view not really understand what those documents and institutions mean and stand for i mean it was a gut punch yeah that's something that jumped out from um from your story and the conversations was you know, and, and that's a broader theme that I think uh, is not unique to um, uh, to uh, Oregonians um, who may not have uh, documentation. It's just the immigrants writ large have an appreciation, I think, of the American system that uh, a lot of naturally born uh, citizens don't an understanding and appreciation for the system and what it's supposed to do. And, you know, I, I found it telling that Esley in particular talked about his faith in the system, despite everything that happened over the last four years. Yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, you know, it's uh, the, the kind of thought exercise that um, a lot of activists and, you know, immigrants put forth is how many, um, how many U.S. citizens, how many naturalized or how many natural-born U.S. citizens could pass the citizenship test? Mm. How many natural-born Americans would be willing to undergo between 10 and 15 years of intense government scrutiny, hand over all sorts of sensitive documents to be tracked for 10 to 15 years, and pay thousands upon thousands of dollars mm-hmm. for the privilege of, of, of living here? Um, not to mention, you know, it's been three years, but I paid $750 just so that I could get that certificate that says, yeah, you can stay. Money well spent. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Uh, let's take a break and come back and talk a little bit more uh, with Edder Camposano about 
his story, uh, looking at dreamers in Oregon and what's on their mind uh, as we enter the Biden administration. So the obvious question, Edder, that you asked, uh, uh, many questions you asked people you interviewed was, what would it mean to finally have legal protections? And here, let's listen to Leo Reyes once more. A sense of stability to start a family. Um, I know that a lot of people you know, have families and have this uh, live undocumented and they're able to do, you know, what they can and be successful at, like, bringing their family forward and moving their family forward. For me, it's a bit scary. I think that sense of responsibility towards um, another human being and without feeling stability in myself and my ability to keep moving forward and to kind of have the thought of, you know, will I be able to be here consistently for my future kids and my family? Um, you know, what would happen if I do have kids and then eventually get supported, or if I do have a family, eventually lose my job because of my immigration status. You know, what, what jumps out to you from, from those comments? It feels weirdly appropriate uh, uh, at times that I cover education for the paper and that, you know, I, I launched into this story because the thing that I kind of chewed on after my conversation with Leo was how would the average parent feel if every two years they had to petition the government to say, can I stay in this country? I mean, that's, that, that, that's it right there. Right. I mean, Leo really spoke to the lack of planning, adequate planning in your life that you can make when you're on kind of a two year renewal timeline where you have to keep going back to the government and asking them, can I stay please for another two years? So I think a Joe Biden presidency for him at the very least, and most simplistically means four years that he doesn't have to worry about whether or not that appeal for renewal will get denied. And a little bit more hope that, yeah, maybe sometime between now and 2024, he'll be able to know that for sure he doesn't have to go through that process again. And Leo's experiences is uh, is different because he came over uh, as a 10-year-old and mm -hmm. he's missed out on a lot um, from, from his family who remain in Mexico because he's unable to see them. Can you talk a little bit about the life, um, milestones and, and hardships that he's missed because of this uncertainty? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that didn't make it into the story is when Leo moved to the U S when he was 10, he had two living grandmothers and one living grandfather. Both of his grandmothers died when he was in the U.S. and he didn't get to go home and say goodbye. So for him, you know, a green card would mean the ability to travel, freely travel back and forth between the two countries without worrying about having to stay in Mexico if something went wrong. And he, ju he just wants to see his grandpa, you know, before he passes away. He wants to catch up with his aunts and uncles before mm -hmm. um, too long, right? So... For immigrants like Leo, who do have memories of their life in another country, for them it means, you know, stepping back into that world, albeit temporarily, but freely, right? I mean, it, again, you think back to 
a natural born U.S. citizen doesn't have to think twice about whether or not they can fly off to Paris or visit Canada for the weekend and, you know, go to Vancouver um, or even fly down to Acapulco. But for people who were born in those countries and were brought here by their parents when they were very, very young, it's a question of, well, is it worth it for me to spend a week or a weekend visiting my family when it means I can't return to my normal life? Let's go back to uh, Esli Becerra again, because he, um, you know, obviously we're living through a pandemic and that is uh, affecting mm-hmm. everyone in society. But um, particularly, as we've reported, um, you know, uh, people who are historically marginalized in Oregon and elsewhere are bearing the brunt um, of the virus itself and some of the ancillary um you know, work-related issues that come along with that as well. Um, and that's a hardship. Here's Esley talking about how his employment is critical to uh, not only his uh, parents, but also uh, his brother. I'm taking care of him um, with, you know, the job that I've been granted to have through DACA. But not just that, also with my parents, you know, I, I pay my parents' rent and fully and i try to give them as much money as i can so they can have a little bit left over because obviously you know as a housekeeper and a dishwasher they don't earn a lot uh, especially in times like these where people are trying to save their money so they're going to be canceling all those t- types of works um my dad has not worked you know at, at, at the restaurant where he has been for the last almost 30 years uh, working at. And so I'm, I know it's, it's hard. That's a lot for anyone to shoulder, let alone when you're also worrying about your status, like you mentioned every two years. Right. And one of the things to sort of understand about multi-generational families, right. That live in the same household is that, the children for so many households are uh, sort of the retirement plan for the parents, right? I know that my mom is going to count on my sisters and me to help provide for her when when she can't work anymore. Um, and that's that's a very common immigrant story. And beyond that, it's just a very common story for a lot of BIPOC folks in Oregon um, who live in multi-generational households. And um, given the pandemic, you know, that obviously um, is even more worrisome when you have, um, you know, people from different age ranges all living in in one household. It's a lot. What else uh, stuck with you from your reporting and your conversations that you think Oregonians should just bear in mind as we look at this this new era and and a new administration over in Washington? Well, I was really struck by Leo in particular and his sort of um, his view that just because you won the election doesn't mean you get to sit on your hands now. Right. Um, So much of what we talk about in our newsroom is keeping Oregon and Portland leaders accountable. Right. For the things Mm -hmm. that they promise people. And that was very much what um, Leo talked about in terms of making sure that, you know, Joe Biden in particular sticks to his promises, but also that, uh, you know, your congressman or congresswoman uh, 
pushes for the things that you think are important. And that just because you voted in November doesn't mean that you should take for granted that the person you did vote for is going to deliver on everything. You still have to call. You still have to uh, write. You still have to make sure that you're making noise. Otherwise, they sort of take it for granted and think that they don't really need to worry about you for two or four years. Yeah, he, he used the phrase "continued engagement." Right? It's got to mm-hmm. uh, it's got to be a, a full time gig. You can't butt your uh, foot off the gas, so to speak. Yeah, and Kevin also spoke about that. I mean, he's planning on moving to DC and trying to find work, um, you know, political work. Uh, now that Joe Biden is in the presidency, so both of them, you know, one on the side of working for government and one on the side of really petitioning it, uh, say that you. Need to stay engaged. You know, Edder, we ha- are, are still in this moment where um, the uh, deaths uh, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor uh, at the hands of police uh, in 2020 sparked this national um, racial uh, justice movement that has really evolved to a number of different whether it's indigenous rights here in um, in um, the Portland area to other causes, uh, is there a sense that um, h- how the uh, DACA um, recipients fit into that picture? Do they have a sense of how they fit into that that picture and how that might um, affect their uh, legal status going forward? You know, in terms of uh, their you know, the effects that those movements might have on them. Not, not really. Um, another thing that didn't make it into the story that I spoke with Esley about was how grateful he was that um, in the middle of the summer, uh, just as people were protesting against police brutality and against systemic racism, there was a lot mm-hmm. of talk among Portland activist circles and, and there were, there were chants, there were signs on the importance of, um, you know, immigrant rights and immigrant protections. So he was heartened to see that people who did not look like him were chanting and marching on his behalf. And the one thing that he wished he could do is join them. He, again, because you have to keep a clean criminal record in order to remain enrolled in the DACA program, he was afraid of going out and marching and, um, you know, protesting along with other people because he didn't want to get arrested by the police. You know, he didn't want to be caught in one of those situations where he might be protesting peacefully and then he he's caught in the middle of something that, you know, stains that record and, and prohibits him from reapplying. So, um, you know, yeah. for him, it was very much a morale boost, but he wished that he could be out there demonstrating. Yeah. As we know from covering covering these events that, you know, there are people who are arrested um, and maybe there's some stamp substantiated accusation but there are many others that it's unclear right and you can't take that risk uh if you're in his shoes yeah no and i mean i (laughs) i talked to esley a little bit about that too in my own case where when i started covering protests for the oregonian because i had a green card and i didn't have my citizenship yet when photographers and other reporters ran right into the action i took two steps back because i was not going to get caught in the kettle and, you know, have have arrested for disorderly conduct or or anything show up on my record so that I could stay in this country. Edder, when you look at just overall, if you had to categorize their the feelings of the, the people you spoke with, are they, you know, is cautiously optimistic a fair description or would you even go that that far in terms of um, 
some sort of national legislation um, under the, the new administration. Absolutely. You know, they, because so much of their future hinges on what happens at the federal level, they're tuned into the news. They're watching it. They're, they're listening to every word that Joe Biden is saying and his willingness to move on it, at least verbally, um, has them optimistic. Um, as Leo said, looking back at the history of this country and how often the Dream Act comes up and then right. never really makes it to even a vote, um, has them cautiously optimistic. So yeah, I think you're right on that. That's exactly how they're feeling. Well, thanks so much for highlighting their stories and for taking time to talk about it. For sure. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. I shared a link to Edder's story in the episode notes. If you like this show, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. And the best way to support our journalism is with a subscription to OregonLive.com. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.